Today is June the 15th, 2022. Welcome to the award-winning Personal Computer Show. I'm Hank Key and my colleague is Joe King. Do you know who has your personal data? Do you know how Facebook, Google, Amazon, and the other big tech companies are using your personal data? Our website is pcradioshow.org. We are heard each Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Progressive Radio Network, prn.live, that's L-I-V-E, streaming on the Internet. Podcasts of the program is available on prn.live on the Internet. You can leave us a message with your question or comment at hank at pcradioshow.org. New York, first state to pass right-to-repair law for electronics. New York State Legislature has passed the first right-to-repair bill for electronics in the United States. This measure, called the Digital Fair Repair Act, requires all manufacturers in the state who sell digital electronics products to make tools, parts, and instructions for repair available to customers and independent shops. After passing legislature, the Digital Fair Repair Act will go into effect one year after it officially passes into law. Right-to-repair advocates like iFixit are happy about the outcome of this measure. The group calls the law one giant leap for repair kind. The passage of this bill means that repairs shall become less expensive and more comprehensive. People who want to fix their own Equipment can, and your repair experience should improve even if you've been intimidated by the thought of opening up your laptop or phone. Where before, manufacturers could push consumers to use manufacturer-authorized shops, now they'll have to compete. Apple has been a critic of rights to repair in the past. However, the company recently wrote out its self-service repair program for certain iPhones in the United States. Through this program, users can purchase genuine iPhone parts to perform their own repairs. While customers can participate in this program, independent repair shops cannot at the moment. While only in one state, this law will surely benefit consumers outside of New York. As manufacturers will have to make their repair manuals available, they'll end up online for others to see worldwide. Since you can't restrict a website to a state, the document should be available for others to see. iFixit has hoped that manufacturers will make these manuals public in the future, regardless of which state passes right-to-repair laws. Revoking job offers is an increasingly common cost-cutting strategy. Before accepting a job at Twitter, A 23-year-old turned down five other offers as Twitter paid well, $180,000 a year, including bonuses and equity, and it's a well-established public company. Well, what could go wrong? Well, a lot. Late last month, Twitter pulled the rug out, rescinding its offer for an associate product manager's role, along with a handful of others. You wouldn't expect a big company to do something like that, would you? Why it matters. Tech companies are hitting the brakes on record levels of hiring over the past two years. 
It's happening so fast that instead of the usual mix of layoffs and slower backfills, employers like Coinbase, Redfin, Twitter, and some startups are rescinding lucrative job offers. It's a surprising trend coming at a time of record unemployment and labor shortages, showcasing the economy's current weirdness and fast-changing nature. This is a trend picking up speed as more leaders are seeing rescission as a feasible strategy. Besides being disappointing and frustrating for those suddenly without jobs, it's also a bad look for the companies. It's totally embarrassing and going to damage their employer brand long term. Taking back job offers also could be a sign that the human resources team is just not aligned with the people in the operations area. It signals a lack of discipline and smart planning across the business. A lot of companies were overhiring. Part of this really is a correction on that. Rescinding job offers is better than layoffs, experts says, and a way to quickly reduce what is often a tech company's top operating cost, which is payroll. Twitter and Coinbase are paying severance to those whose job offers they rescinded. What the companies say is, while it's necessary to slow our headcount growth in light of the macro environment, we deeply regret the impact this has for the affected candidates. The Coinbase chief people officer wrote in a blog the following, Coinbase will provide legal assistance to anyone needing visa-related help in the wake of having their offer pulled. The bottom line, this is a bummer. But it's a phenomenon so far mostly confined to tech and mostly for roles that pay extremely well. The tech job market is weird. The European Union requires all smartphones to have a common charging port. The European Union reached an agreement that will require all new smartphones and tablets to use a common charger by 2024. The European Union will require all new smartphones and tablets sold within its borders to have a common charging port by the fall of 2024 and laptops by 2026. Under a new provisional agreement, pushing technology companies such as Apple to fall in line with other smartphone makers that have widely adopted a universal port in recent years. European Parliament and Council negotiators agreed on the law saying in a statement that the move is intended to make products in the European Union more sustainable, to reduce electronic waste, consumers' lives easier. The law, which still needs to be formally approved, requires all new smartphones, tablets, e-readers, and portable speakers, among a long list of other small electronic devices sold in the European Union to use the USB-C type charging port. The requirement for laptops would take effect in early 2026. The small pill-shaped port is already used in many smartphones and laptops, as well as Apple's latest iPads, and some of its previous generation MacBook laptops. But the mandate puts Apple in a difficult position, as it has clung to its proprietary lightning port on its iPhones and the charging cases for its AirPods in-ear headphones. In a technology news item, they call the European law 
a major blow to Apple's lightning port. Much like how California's environmental and safety standards often lead to changes across the United States because of the logistical difficulty and financial impracticality of creating different products for different states. The European charging port law could have a widespread impact for handheld consumer electronics across the world. In Germany, the European Union's largest economy, the top three most popular smartphones are all iPhones, with the fourth and fifth being Samsung Galaxy phones that use USB-C ports. In France, the bloc's second largest economy, iPhones hold the top four spots in the smartphone market. Apple also recently brought back its proprietary MagSafe magnetic charger to its MacBook Pro and announced it would do the same with its thinner MacBook Air laptops. Apple has apparently been preparing for the crackdown. However, the Bloomberg News reported last month that amid looming possibility of the European law, the company has tested iPhone models that use USB-C instead of the proprietary port. Technology critics have for years complained about Apple's persistence in maintaining its proprietary ports, noting that while many device makers have conformed to the USB-C port, Apple's unique charging medium leaves consumers stuck with a tangle of various cables. But the European Union's move could, well, stifle efforts to innovate towards the abolishment of charging ports altogether, such as the use of magnetic contact chargers instead of ports to for extremely thin devices. Report says Microsoft will require solid-state drives for new PCs. Is it a big deal? Most PCs already have solid-state drives, according to a report from Tom's Hardware. Microsoft plans to make PC makers ship solid-state boot drives in all Windows PCs starting in 2023, or perhaps 2024, putting an end to the days of the hard disk drive for most of the PC brands that still include them. Trend Focus claims that Microsoft initially tried to make the change in 2022, but that resistance from manufacturers meant it had been pushed out to sometime, well, next year or the year after. Microsoft and the PC manufacturers are still negotiating the timeline and possible exceptions. The vast majority of new systems from bargain basement laptops to to gaming desktops to premium ultrabooks come with solid-state drive boot drives and have done so for years. Some solid-state storage is better than others. Cheap eMMC storage in a budget laptop will be nowhere near as fast as the cheapest MVME solid-state drive. But these days, only the very cheapest of budget desktops still use hard drives as their primary storage. Microsoft also maintains requirements for the PC manufacturers that are different from Windows core system requirements. The manufacturers were required to ship and enable features like Secure Boot and the Trusted Platform Module, TPM, for years before Windows 11 began requiring them for all Windows installs. Which is to say, even if the PC companies can't sell your computer with a rotational hard drive as the boot disk, 
it's less likely that Windows will refuse to install on a rotational hard drive if you need it for whatever the reasons may be. The current system requirements for Windows 11 stipulate 64 gigabyte or more storage capacity, but don't specify what kind of storage you use. By the way, 64 gigabytes for Windows 11 is much too low. The, the minimum, the absolute minimum, is 128 gigabytes. A check of Dell's and HP's website, plus new desktop listings on Newegg, suggests that a solid-state drive requirement would primarily hit two market segments for US PC buyers. One is the very bottom end of the consumer desktop market, where a handful of Inspiron and Pavilion systems still ship without solid-state drives. The other is the business desktop market where systems include hard disk drives in base models. The requirement could also hit harder in more price-sensitive developing markets outside the United States. Google is merging Duel and Meet into a single video calling platform. The resulting service will be known as Google Meet. Google is about to simplify its communication services. The company announced its plan to merge Duel and Meet, its two disparate video calling apps, into a single platform. Starting over the next few weeks, Google will begin adding Meet features to Duel. Once that happens, you'll be able to use the app, which up to this point was primarily designed for personal video calling to schedule meetings. Other features that will make their way to do include support for virtual backgrounds, live sharing content, and in-meeting text chat. At the same time, Google promises features dual users know and love, such as the ability to apply filters and effects to their calls, won't be going anywhere. Additionally, your call history, contacts, and messages won't disappear from the app. It's all part of Google's pledge to carefully integrate the two platforms and ensure it supports as many users as possible. Once that process is complete, Google will rename the mobile version of both apps with Duo becoming Meet and the current Meet becoming Meet Original. The company said it plans to deprecate the latter eventually. If all that sounds confusing, there's good reason for Google's approach. The company said it built a lot of sophistication into the Duo mobile app and it sounds like Google doesn't want to abandon that work. As for Google's reasons for merging the two apps, the company believes that doing so will ultimately benefit users. Over the last few years, Duo and Meet have continued to grow with the evolving needs of video calls and meetings. And now the experiences will be better together as Google Meet. A spokesperson for the company said, Of course, the tricky part for Google would be finding a way to integrate the two apps without making the resulting service feel overwhelming. Many people love Duo for its simplicity, and a sudden influx of new features and added complexity may make them look elsewhere. Electronic Equipment Depreciation Computers are tools, not investments. They lose 2% of their value per week. One of the main drivers of this depreciation is obsolescence. Technology advances, parts become cheaper, 
and developers create software designed to run on more powerful systems. Before you know it, that machine that you paid handsomely for is a paperweight. Laptops remain more of their value than desktops, and Apple products maintain more value than competitors. But a decade-old laptop is still going to be worth very little. Apple iPhones lose about 17% of their trade-in value in the first year after purchase, and Android phones lose around 33%. After four years, iPhone loses about 66% of their value, and Android's about 81%. After that, they're both basically worthless. Streaming devices, tablets, monitors, speakers, external hard drives, and most other little gadgets you bought at one time or another lose a ton of value within the first year you own them. Smartwatches lose about 41% of their value in the first year, and headphones lose about 44% of theirs. The devaluation increases per year until eventually most of these things end up as paperweights or curiosities. Who remembers when everyone had a dedicated GPS system in their car? Well, I have a portable unit that I no longer use. They used to say that a new car lost about 10% of its value when you drove it off the lot, a quarter of its value after the first year, and about 60% of its value in five years. But recent supply chain and other macroeconomic issues have sent the cost of used cars skyrocketing, so the conventional wisdom doesn't apply at this moment. According to U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics, the price index for used cars and trucks rose about 40.5% from January 2021 to January 2022. So if you bought a new car in the last few years, it's a great time to sell it. You might even make a profit. Presenting the IT Pro Series with Benjamin Rockwell. Executives and companies says that turning off the Zoom cameras means bad worker. This is Benjamin Rockwell, and now it's time to get down to business. This is where we talk about, uh, yes, the world of the IT professional with the, the world of tech in the company and all of these different things combined. And a recent survey came out that 92% of executives at large to medium firms were discussing workers and how if they turned off their cameras that they should be, well, on the way out of the company. This is, this is mind-boggling to me. This is a lot of, of different people up at the top of the food chain saying, if you turn off your Zoom cam, you need to be looking for a new job. Okay, so I get some of the concerns on the part of the executives. They want to see that you're working, but they're not on Zoom calls all the time. If you, if you out there, you listening, if you've done things right, you've set up your office so that when you have to turn on the camera, it looks good. It doesn't look like you've been sitting there doing nothing for however long. It's, it's not a disaster zone. It's not, uh, you know, what people think of is, what's the name of the show? Um, uh, hoarders or something like that. Yeah, this is, you don't want that. But you do want to be prepared to turn on the Zoom call if other people are doing it. You want to be prepared by, yes, 
making sure you've dressed nicely as if you're going into the office, that your hair is done properly, that you are presentable. But at the same time, there are plenty of companies out there. The company I work for, uh, and I've been working there for about three years, the amount of times that I have actually had to turn on my camera, I could count them on one hand. And when I say that, that is because that's how many times we've had meetings where people have turned on their cameras and we joined together to see each other. Probably three of them were because of COVID. Uh, so this is you know just a matter of in the early days of COVID, a matter of this is how we're getting together. This is how we're uh, electronic happy hour kind of thing, except nobody's imbibing and nobody's you know everybody's still being professional. It was just kind of kind of a different thing. Now I don't get the idea of these executives going this route because well frankly, it's a bandwidth. Uh, just it just soaks up all kinds of bandwidth to have everybody on their cameras. That's a problem. It is something that, well, a lot of us are getting sick of Zoom calls, those who are involved with them. I'll tell you, I, I've been on just uh, you know a number of Zoom calls. They've been with my community group. My, you know, my church community group. Uh, I get on to, uh, we use Skype when we're recording some of the different segments that I use uh, just around through the rest of the radio show stuff that I do. But for the most part, the camera stays off. I've got a nice looking office. I've got, you know, just everything done up nicely. And yes, I, I will put on my nerd glasses and I will move forward with this. But fortunately, I don't go through any level of uh, just I'm sick of Zoom or anything like that. But then let's move into those next sections. If somebody you know comes to me and says, you know, hey, you know, you need to turn on your camera. I'm like, OK, fine. But I'm not going to be giving them a tour of my house. I'm not going to be going around and going, hey, check this out. Oh, look at this. Look at that. That's that's kind of not not appropriate for any boss to be asking. So we need to be very careful about this. And in the real world that we've wound up in, where, yes, we are accessible at home, there are going to be times when, as we've seen on the news, you know, some somebody's sitting there and they're doing an interview, you know, via a remote cam, via, you know, a webcam and the kid waters into the room. And we've seen this before and that's fine. But. I think ever I think these executives need to just relax a little bit. I think they need to show a little bit more flexibility. And I it's easy for me to say that because again, I work for a large company that doesn't do this. But I uh, I think fortunately this is something that is going to uh, it's going to as they think about this going to go away. At least I hope it will. The reality is that most of us are starting to move into more of a, a hybrid working environment where, yes, some of us are going into the office a day out of the week or two days out of the week or three days, whatever it is, but we're also working via remote. So where do we find the balance? Where do we find you know, just the right thing to do? This is my tip. If your boss is on camera, check yourself make sure you've got your hair combed 
I don't have to worry about that. I, I'm shaved. I, I shave my head daily. Uh, but, you know, make sure that you look presentable and then turn on the camera. There's nothing wrong with that. Be careful. And again, I, I would say plan it out. Look ahead. Look around your room and give yourself a chance for your camera to present the best side of you, the best look for you and your room, your, your office, your entire presentation. With the modern day and age, yes, we are moving towards the the fabled video phone from the 50s and 60s when they said we would they, that we'd be here someday. And yes, here we are. We are we've got video phone available to us, but we just don't use it as much. We just don't go in those same directions that that we really thought we would. I'm not as excited. Yeah, yeah, I've got FaceTime, you know, on on my iPhone. Do I really use it a whole lot? No, not really. And maybe these executives need to just dial it back. Who knows? This is Benjamin Rockwell. Back to you, Hank. Thank you, Benjamin. The electric car is not ready for prime time for all the people. According to the data published by the U.S. Census Bureau, an estimated 85.4% of the 100 50 million workers drove to their workplace in an automobile, which comes down to 128 million people. And the information from the U.S. Department of Transportation, Bureau of of Transportation Statistics, Omnibus Household Survey, says that to get to work, the average commuter travels approximately 15 miles one way, and two out of three commuters, that's 68%, reported a one-way commute of 15 miles. More than three-quarters, that's 76.4% of commuters, drive to work alone. The average commuter food shopping travel is an average of 3.43 miles to their primary store, despite living 1.9 miles from a supermarket or supercenter. It is safe to say that the average working person drives conservatively 50 miles each weekday for work and daily needs. According to Federal Highway Administration, the average miles driven per year comes around 14,200 miles. So a person drives an average of around 1,200 miles per month. So what we have is the automobile is used for commuting to and from work and local food shopping two-thirds of the time with a round trip within 50 miles. The Chevrolet Bolt and the Tesla 3 are two of the more popular selling electric cars. Here's what you can expect with each Chevy Bolt charger type, level 1 basic charging, 4 miles per range per hour in charge. Level 2, fast charging, 26 miles of range per hour, and 39 miles of range per hour on fast charge. The Chevy Bolt EV has a fully electric range maximum of 259 miles on a single charge. On a Tesla, on their website, they say a 120-volt outlet, that's type 1, will supply 2 to 3 miles of range per hour charge. If you charge overnight and drive less than 30 to 40 miles per day, this option should meet your typical charging needs. A Tesla Model 3 go on a single charge has a maximum driving range of 374 miles. 
However, there are many variables involved, such as which electric vehicle you own, the size of its battery, the charging rate of its onboard charger, and the power source. A major question is, how long does it take to charge an electric car? Nailing down precisely how long it takes to charge an electric car consists of various variables. While the variables are most obvious, there are some other variables that impact EV charging time. These include, but aren't limited to, the weather, the temperature of the car's battery, the length of the charging cable, and the battery state of charge, that's the SOC, at the time of plugging in. SOC basically means how full the battery is relative to its total capacity. Just realize that your experience may differ slightly and significantly depending on which variables are at play. Electric vehicles start to charge slower in cold weather or when the battery is nearing full. If it's hot outside or your EV battery is warm from the weather and lots of driving, it will charge more rapidly. In addition, if the battery is almost empty, it will charge more quickly. This is especially true when using public DC fast charging. How quickly an electric vehicle can charge depends mostly on the charging source, which is often called the charging level or charging speed. The average price for a brand new electric vehicle is roughly $55,000, and that's considerably higher than the average four-door sedan, which runs about $35,000, according to the Kelly Blue Book. While you can start recouping that extra money with things like tax credits and gas savings, it's going to take a few years to make up a potential $20,000 difference. What really hasn't been addressed is how to charge an electric car if the car owner lives in an urban city setting of high-rise with limited indoor parking or just fine parking on the street. From commuter costs to taking a long trips, the ideal is if you can afford two cars, an EV unit for commuting to and from work, and a hybrid for taking long trips. I was surprised to learn that 57% of households do own two cars. Now, these are some of the manufacturer's tips to improve the mileage of an electric car. Minimize acceleration. Electric cars' quick acceleration is fun, but do not use it all the time. Watch your speed. Fuel economy on any vehicle is impacted by how fast you drive. Stay under 60 when you can. Don't forget the regenerative braking setting. When coming to a stop, utilize electric car's energy recovering regenerative braking and minimize using regular braking. When coming to a stop, leave enough room for the car to slow before braking. Check your tire pressure. If your tires are not properly inflated, it will lead to increased energy consumption. Condition the battery. Battery health is critical for longevity of a vehicle. Talk with the car dealer on the best way to keep your model's battery in prime condition. Plan car charging times. You do not want to charge your car all the time. You want to plan to charge just before you're set to leave because the battery will start discharging when the battery is full. Use the heater less. The heater will drain your battery. Some EVs have heated seats and other warming features that do not put as much drain on the battery. If it is safe to do so, use those features to stay warm. Cut down on air conditioning. It is easy to say 
to cut down on air conditioning, and in some climates, it's not possible. But the compressor in the air conditioner can drain your battery. Plan a fuel-efficient trip. Heavy traffic areas should be avoided. Try to choose a route will allow you a smoother ride with less stop and go. So what is the future of electric cars? All manufacturers are heavily investing in electric cars, and their goal is to sell electric cars, of course. With each vehicle iteration, electric cars are adding more features and extending their range. Electric cars are here to stay, but if at the present time, the factors make it impractical for you to own an electric car, well, consider a hybrid automobile. When it comes to charging an electric car, there are three charging levels. Level 1, Level 2, and Direct Current Fast Charging. The Fast Charging DC, which is often referred to as Level 3, though Level 3 charging doesn't officially exist. Tesla Supercharging is also considered DC Fast Charging. In Level 1, using AC, the most readily available means for charging almost anything in North America, including an electric car is a standard 120-volt, 15-amp household outlet. This is called Level 1 charging. The time it takes to fully charge an electric vehicle by plugging it into a traditional household outlet isn't measured in hours, but rather in days. While Level 1 charging is definitely possible, it's not really practical in most cases, especially if you're trying to charge the electric vehicle battery in full. With level 1 charging, you can expect to add about 3 to 6 miles of range per hour. If you only drive 30 to 40 miles per day, you just need to top up your battery or you have a plug-in hybrid electric vehicle, which is abbreviated as PHEV, with minimal electric-only range. Level 1 charging may suffice. However, charging a car like the 2022 Tesla Model 3 long range which claims to have a 353 miles of EPA estimated range from empty to full would take you four days. Still, it's better to plug a parked electric vehicle into some power source than not to plug in at all. Level 2, which uses AC current, and this is where most EV owners rely on for level 2 charging at home. This, however, requires a 240-volt outlet, which you'll likely have to have installed in your home. Level 2 outlets for home EV charging are usually on a 50-amp circuit to allow safe charging at a maximum of 40 amps and ensure that the car charges as quickly as possible. That said, they can vary from as little as 12 amps to as much as 80 amps. A 240-volt Level 2 charging station Cost $350 to $900 on average, probably more on the higher end, $900. The average cost to install a level 2 charger is $400 to $1,700. And again, from people I've spoken to, many of them are more on the higher end. The level 2 electric vehicle chargers fully charge an electrical vehicle battery in 4 to 10 hours which includes application monitoring, thermal regulation, 
and programmable scheduling. You also need a level 2 charging cable or a level 2 charging station at home. If you buy a new EV, it may come with the appropriate portable charging adapter. However, any circuit over 40 amps will require a hardwired charging station. The Tesla Model 3 Long Range takes about 10 hours to charge using Level 2. Many public charging stations are also Level 2. It would make sense to plug into a Level 2 public charger at or near work or when you're staying overnight at a hotel that has such a unit or resort or even while you're sitting down for a meal at a restaurant if the charging unit is available or at least one that's close by. The quickest way to charge an EV is by using the DC fast charging station or a Tesla supercharger. Unlike level 1 and level 2, which rely on alternating current, that's AC current, level 3, charging relies on direct current, otherwise known as DC current. Public charging is a good option when you have the time to spare. It's not practical for quick fill-ups on road trips. DC fast charging isn't yet as quick as pumping gas, but it's quick enough to get you back on the road. Charging stations also vary by speed, but you can expect to charge a battery to about 80% in about 30 to 45 minutes. If you're planning a road trip in your electric vehicle, you will need to find fast charging stations that are strategically located along your route. As you plan your route, try to keep in mind that charging from about 10% to 80% during each stop makes the most sense. This should allow for the quickest charging. EV drivers don't typically drive their cars until the battery is nearly dead, and charging to 100% will add a significant amount of unnecessary time to your charging session. It's best to charge just enough to make it to the next charging station, so you can take advantage of the fastest part of your car's charging curve. Electric car's onboard chargers, otherwise known as OBC, convert AC power from the power source to DC current matched to the battery pack's voltage. Onboard chargers can be more or less powerful depending on which electric vehicle you own. An onboard charge is limited by its amperage, and its charging rate is measured in kilowatts. If you're using a level 1 connector, it makes no sense how powerful your EV's onboard charger is, since the car's onboard charger can't make up for the low-level power source. With level 1, you'll only get about 1 kilowatt to 2 kilowatt rate of charge. If you charge at 1 kilowatt for an hour, it will deliver 1 kilowatt hour of electricity to your EV. So if the EV has a 60 kilowatt hour battery pack, it will take a bare minimum 60 hours to charge in full. Using a level 2 connector, an EV's charging speed is impacted by how much power the station is capable of delivering as as well as the charging rate of the car's onboard charger. Level 2 systems typically deliver between 3 kilowatt and 19 kilowatt. Some people have spent a fortune on a top-of-the-line high-wattage hardwire level 2 charging system for their home only to learn it doesn't allow their EV to charge any quicker. This is because the charging speed is limited by the charging rate of the car's onboard charger. 
DC fast charging bypasses a car's onboard charger since there's no need to convert AC to DC. While it seems all new, electric vehicles come standard with DC fast charging capability. However, that's not true of all used electric vehicles. So if you're buying a used EV, make sure when you buy that EV, it's capable of fast charging. Another thing to note is that when the manufacturer specifies an estimated mileage range, it's at the most optimum. In other words, most optimum means that you're not using air conditioning, you're not using the heater. In fact, you're running at one speed, you're not doing a lot of stop and stop, and that's not how you would typically drive an automobile. So if you're trying to identify strategic points to charge the battery on a long trip, what you should do is, like in the case of Tesla, where they're talking of optimally with a maximum range of 353 miles, cut that in half. So this will allow for things like air conditioning, heating, radio, and anything else you may have. So in the Model 3 long range, which they claim to be 353 miles, and from reviews I've read, it's under 300. And when you take everything else into consideration, uh, I would cut that in half and say, about 170 to 200 miles for a fully charged electric vehicle. Why? Well, if you're using a GPS, you don't know if the GPS is taking you in the shortest route or even giving you misdirection that will require you to drive a further distance to get to the right place. So these are the things that you should consider when you're buying an electric vehicle and the type of charging you need. I would say that level two charging is what most people would be using because that's more practical if you are driving 50 to 60 miles a day at most uh, because the average commute is 15 to 20 miles for 85% of all drivers during the weekday. So on a round trip, that's about, that would be 30 to 40 miles. And if you happen to do any grocery shopping afterwards, uh, according to the uh, Department of Transportation, most people, when they do food shopping, averages about a little bit under four miles. So add eight, eight more miles to that. So if you can use your fully charged car within a 50 to 60 mile range, by all means, if you're considering an electric vehicle, the Type 2 charging is what you really need. And add to it somewhere between two to $3,000 to put in a special Type 2 charging unit. Presenting Technology Chatter with Benjamin Rockwell and Marty Winston and what they have to say for Father's Day. And this is Father's Day weekend and uh, uh, you're, you're not my father. Uh, but I'm almost old enough. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. You have, uh, but you've also provided a very nice uh, uh, kind of a, I, I want to thank you. you. You have provided a nice set of guidance for this show over the years. So thank, thank you uh, so very much. So yeah, and I also earlier um, gave you a a dad joke. Should we repeat it? I, I, I what do you call a chicken with no pants on? Oh, that one. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> yes. You still call it a chicken. Now put your pants on. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. Oh, my. 
I mean, Father's Day dad jokes inseparable from now on. I oh, remember yes. back in the past yeah. when it was yeah. elephant jokes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh man. <laughs> <laughs> So so uh, okay so we're we are both fathers. I know you've got uh, you've got some some progeny. I have progeny as well. He's uh, he, he actually was on the show for a number of years. I I don't know. Did you ever meet my son? I think so. I think it yeah. was one of the early CESs where you brought him along. Yeah, yeah. And uh uh I mean he was amazed by CES and then uh that same year I took him to E3 which oh. Oh, wow. You never came home again. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Um, so CES, CES, for those of you who, who I haven't heard this before, I love I love making this analogy. Think of Las Vegas and you then go inside of the ballrooms and everything that you see in the ballrooms makes the outside of you know all of the hotels, all of the flashing lights, the, the neon, the, the big, huge screens, everything look kind of mundane because you've got <laughs> I, you know like like the LG booth have you oh. ever seen so many televisions in one spot and it's it's, a, it's like it's like an island nation it's it's like the it's it's like all of the television displays of all of the best buys and and Costco's and Sam clubs in you know in any given 100 mile radius and they've managed to put this all in one wall <laughs> <laughs> and then there's a Sony booth that's, you know, what, what a, a minute walk away. Uh, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And, 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 and <clears throat> you, you, you can't walk anywhere without being ambushed by PR people. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's, so did your, did your son ever go to, uh, 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 uh no, he, he never, never came to a trade show. No, he's been other places. He's been around the world. I've, I, I was in Korea and spent a, a few minutes in Japan, and, and the rest of my time has been United States, except for a little Canada. He's been to Italy. He's been to France. He's been to England. He's been yeah. to Australia. He's been everywhere. Wow! Wow! Yeah. And so, uh, I'm not. I'm not sure, but he always comes back. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's good. You, now, now my son's not a child. He's in his mid thirties. Mm -hmm, yeah. And uh, I. A few days before Christmas, my car got rear-ended, got totaled. Yeah, yeah, we, I, I was we, we talked about it here, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so I, I got a Forester. It was an XV, a Subaru XV Crosstrek. I got a Forester. I thought, all right, I'm going to indulge in a vanity plate. Yes. So, so I, I, the first thing I did was to get a plate designed, which is U.S. Armed Forces veteran, U.S. Air Force. Uh -huh, yeah. And then I thought, okay, what do I want for the plate? And I thought, I'm going to go for my last duty assignment. Yeah. And I was with uh, AFKN TV in Seoul, Korea, which is American Forces Radio and Television Service. Uh -huh. So my plate read AFRTS. Okay, of course. AFRTS. And my son said, Dad, how come you got a plate that says, and he misread the thing to be a naughty word. A F R T. Oh, 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 oh. <laughs> Dad, you're lucky you got one of those plates. Ooh, yeah. <laughs> you talked him into that. You you slipped one past them. <laughs> yeah. Uh, wow. 
<laughs> so so you know it, our, our kids say some of the some of the craziest things don't they <laughs> if we don't stop them <laughs> yeah yeah oh there's always duct tape <laughs> oh no no he's 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 a full head taller than i am and <laughs> and uh, shoulder and a half broader and uh yeah, you, you sound like you're describing the the relationship between my son and myself. He's uh-huh. yeah, yeah I, he's, I think we all shrink into gnomes before we get too old. Yeah, well, he's he's six foot four, and yes, he's quite <laughs> quite a bit broader than I am. And he, I don't know why. How's it happen? Did, did, did they not feed us? <laughs> I, I have no idea. You know, you know, I'll I'll reminisce. I remember my son. He got a job. I mean, this is not tech. I apologize, but you know, he got a, a job working security. One of his first jobs. Uh, he went to the went to the to the company. And they said, no, we only you know we only hire experienced people for this site. But I'm going to send you out there anyways. And they they called up the site and they said, no, you want to see this guy. You want to? See, he has no background, but you want to see him. So he shows up. I mean, he. I mean, my son eventually wound up. He he got shifted. He was at that site. He got shifted to another one. He was working the at South Coast Plaza, uh, which it, he was working the Gucci, uh, the, oh the, the Gucci uh, <laughs> shop there as security. They they bought him. They bought him a very nice suit. So, uh, you know, all black, black tie, black shirt. He looked serious mafia. But, yeah, I mean, you can think of the, this big, huge wall moving towards you. They didn't have any theft during the time he was there. <laughs> as well, I, my son, my son, you know, wasn't as geek as I was, but he got to a point where he could build computers alongside me. Nice. He's, oh, yeah. His degree was uh, history and uh, film, I think, if I remember right, maybe English. Uh, and he's now writing documentation as a consultant to Sirius XM on their programming that runs all of those radio channels through the satellites. So it's uh, weird. It's just weird. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> this is Benjamin Rockwell. Back to you, Hank. Thank you, Ben. And thank you, Marty. The 46th annual Trenton Computer Festival was held Saturday, March the 19th of this year. There were over 50 talks on 10 concurrent tracks. All the sessions were recorded and they are available and free for download at the following website, tcf-nj.org. And the main page of that website will direct you to the portal site. Public Service Announcements of Computer Club Meetings in the New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut Tri-State Region. Log on to the club website for more information on Remote Meeting ID. The Brookdale Computer Users Group will have a presentation, Learn All About a VPN, Thursday, June the 23rd. Meeting time is 6.45 p.m., virtual meeting via Zoom, Website is bcug.com. The Amateur Computer Group of New Jersey meets Friday, July 1st. Meeting time is 8 p.m. Online virtual meeting via Jitsi. Their website is acgnj.org. 
The Westchester PC Users Group meets Thursday, July the 7th. Meeting time is 7 p.m., online virtual meeting via Zoom, and their website is wpcug.org. The Long Island Macintosh Users Group meets Friday, July 8th. Meeting time is 7 p.m., online virtual meeting via Zoom, and their website is limac.org. The King's Byte Computer Club meets Tuesday, July 12th. Meeting time is 7 p.m., and they meet at the Park Plaza Restaurant, 220 Cadman Plaza West in Brooklyn. For more information, the phone number to call is 347-278-7320. The New York Amateur Computer Club meets Thursday, July the 14th at 7 p.m. Online virtual meeting via Zoom, and the website is nyacc.org. Happy computing! Our website is pcradioshow.org. We are heard each Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time on prn.live, streaming on the Internet. Podcasts of the program is available on prn.live on the Internet. If you have any questions for us, just send us an email addressed to hank at pcradioshow.org. Just a reminder, this coming Sunday is Father's Day. And by the way, that includes grandfather, great-grandfather, and if you're lucky enough, great-great-grandfather, and let's not forget godfather and father-in-laws. And if you see him, give him a big hug and you will have made his day. In the meantime, stay in touch and remember to do regular backups. I'm Hank Key, and on behalf of Joe King, Michael Horowitz, Benjamin Rockwell, and Marty Winston, we thank you for listening. Stay safe and healthy. Until we meet again, same time, same station, next week. Oh.